it's an interesting observation because I realized, you know, not early on, but later in my career, I look back on all the things that I'd done, which was songwriting, newspaper, journalist, campaign guy, campaign ad guy, television show producer. I mean, it's all about storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. And so that there was a glue, a connective tissue there for all those things that I've done, which is all about the creative side and trying to tell a story in a way that's compelling for, for consumers or, or viewers. So the big question is this, how are candidates like us, who don't have big money donors, who are spending money out of our own pockets to get elected, how do we get our message out, raise enough money to win, target the right voters, and yet still remain true to what got us into politics to begin with? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to Campaign Secrets. Welcome, everybody, to Campaign Secrets. In this episode... We have one of my favorite people and one of the nicest guys in the political business, Democrat turned Republican turned no labels founder, media consultant, Mark McKinnon. During our interview, Mark discusses his life in music, politics, and media. We also discuss his time working with President George W. Bush, Carl Rove, and many other colorful characters that he got the chance to work with during his time in Texas and Louisiana politics. Mark McKinnon is best known for leading George W. Bush's 98 re-election campaign for Texas governor and then leading Bush's media campaign in 2000 and 2004. Being the lead media consultant to two successful presidential campaigns is an honor few consultants have ever accomplished in American history. So Mark McKinnon knows a thing or two about campaign ads and what it takes to win at the highest level. But before all that, McKinnon was a songwriter who lived with Chris Christopherson in Nashville. Not the typical path to politics, which is probably why Mark McKinnon is truly an American maverick. Since the 1994, or since the 2004 election, Mark McKinnon has been a fixture on Morning Joe and other political programs, as well as developing and producing the popular Showtime show, The Circus, inside the greatest political show on earth. I hope you enjoy this interview. I'm not in Texas anymore. I moved. I moved back to my home in Colorado, which is where I'm from originally. Oh, gotcha. So, what? Where did you grow up in Colorado? I was born in Boulder, grew up in Denver, and spent a lot of time in Breckenridge, where my uh, grandfather lived. Lived, and that's kind of where I live most of the time now, near Breckenridge. Gotcha. Where did you go to college at? I went to the University of Texas in Austin. I lived in Austin for forty years. So, well, Austin, Texas is. One of the best places on earth. Oh, it is. And, and believe me, you know, I, I, growing up in Colorado, there's this weird thing in Colorado. People in Colorado don't like Texas. They don't like Texans mm-hmm. generally. And it's mostly because so many Texans come up here and take over the ski slopes and don't know how to drive in the snow. And, uh, although everybody fails to realize that they're subsidizing it for the rest of us. But um, so on my list of places that I thought I'd live, Texas was 50th. And uh, then I discovered Austin and just fell in love with it. So did you get involved in politics while you're at Austin, at Texas? Yeah, although that's not why I originally went there. I originally went there for music. Uh, I was a musician early on. I lived in Nashville for a while. And I, in the mid-70s, I went out to play at a, a Texas folk festival in Kerrville called the Kerrville Folk Festival. And I uh, won their songwriters competition. And on my way back to Nashville, I stopped in Austin and I uh, just fell in love with Austin immediately. And they, Kerrville asked me to come back the next year. So I just packed my stuff and stayed the next year. So what was the first campaign you really got involved in? 
the very first one was, well, it was my own. I had to run for editor of the Daily Texan, the newspaper editorship, which is they have a weird thing there. Because student fees are involved, they decided that that person should be elected. So my own, that was my first campaign. But my first real campaign working for a candidate was for Lloyd Doggett, uh, who ran, he's a current congressman of Texas, uh, and he was a very popular state senator at the time in Austin. And I had written about him a lot when I was at the newspaper. And then he went to run for the United States Senate against Phil Graham in 1984. And this was Paul Begala's first campaign and James Carville's almost first campaign. It was, it was one of the very first campaigns that James had done. And it was an epic race. Uh, Doggett was not supposed to win the primary and it won a huge upset uh, in the primary and then got crushed in the general election because it was 1984. And, and you know, uh, that was uh, morning in America, Reagan year. So no Democrats won that year. Uh, and I thought, you know, I thought that was uh, sort of one and done. And and that's when I discovered you can fail upwards in politics because I, I got a call from the governor's office from Mark White, the governor then, and asked me to go to work for him. And then it was working on uh, Mark White's reelection campaign that I got to know Ray Struther, who I know is somebody you've talked to the podcast. Mm-hmm. And Ray is a great, great character and a, and a big mentor of mine. Uh, because uh, I, I almost went to work for Ray, but after that campaign in Texas, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I had, I had a few different ideas about where I was going to go and what I was going to do. One of them was go to work for Bill Clinton as press secretary. Uh, uh, but the other thing, the thing that Struther told me that r- really caught my attention was he said, McKinnon, if you think you know anything about politics, Go to go to Louisiana and get your PhD. So I went to Louisiana and I worked for I worked with Ray on a campaign for a guy named Buddy Romer, who was a congressman in north out of northeast Louisiana. And we were running against Edwin Edwards, who had not lost a race in 19 elections, 18 or 19. He'd never lost. Incredibly charismatic figure there, uh, but also a crook. <laughs> and uh and we beat him in a big upset victory. And that was kind of my first W, first notch in my gun. And uh, uh, it was a big deal and kind of helped set the table for my career. And, and I, I really loved it. Louisiana was an exceptional experience. I mean, Louisiana politics, are, as Ray told me they would be, are just like unlike anywhere and, and just had a blast. Yeah. Well, so music never left you, though. That's your first love is music. Well, you know, I mean, it's something that I thought that I was going to do for all my life. I mean, I, I started doing it when I was like seven or eight. And I lived with Chris Christopherson in Nashville for three years in his apartment. And and I just I was totally consumed by it. But, you know, I think the one time in my life where I really exercised some judgment was after I'd been in Austin for a couple of years. And I looked around. And I said, man, you're you're OK, but you're not you're nowhere near as good as these other cats out here and you ought to think about a plan B. So I, yes, I still love music, but uh, I realized on the trajectory that I was on, I was going to end up at the Austin holiday Inn as the second act when I was 50 years old. And uh, (laughs) so uh, I started, uh, got into journalism and then politics, which, you know, is also something I've always loved. Yeah, I think some of the best, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you have a, mu- a music background and a songwriting background, because when you, you got into ad making, and so I do that too, and I think you got to have that sort of creativity has to be there. 
well, see the humanity a, in people. It's an interesting observation because I realized, you know, not early on, but later in my career, I look back on all the things that I'd done, which was songwriting, newspaper journalist, campaign guy, campaign ad guy, television show producer. I mean, it's all about storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. And so that there was a glue, a connective tissue there for all those things that I've done, which is all about the creative side and trying to tell a story in a way that's compelling for, for consumers or, or viewers. So you started off as a Democrat. Yeah. And, and in Texas, when you got started, Democrats were winning everything. In fact, you yeah. mentioned Phil Graham. He was a Democratic congressman and then switched. I guess that's that was the year he switched. You are a good student of politics, Matt. Uh, that's a very good observation. Yeah. The reality is that um, uh, when I was initially working in politics in Texas, there were two parties. There was the conservative Democratic Party and the liberal Democratic Party. There was no <laughs> Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And you had to be you know, one of the two. I mean, Lloyd Benson's a good example. He's a senator from Texas. Mm-hmm. He was a conservative Democrat. If he'd been around today or 10 years later, he would have been a Republican for sure. And it's just that there was not an established Republican Party. And what happened is that eight statewide constitutional offices uh, that, that people run for office in Texas. In 1990, all 28 were Democrats. Eight years later, after George Bush was elected in 1994, all 28 were Republicans. So as soon as somebody came onto the scene and said, hey, I'm a Republican, and, and, and he had this you know, great message about compassionate conservatism, which appealed to a lot of conservative Democrats like me, and I just said, hey, that's what I am. And so it was, it was not a difficult thing for me to cross the bridge. Of course, I really liked him a lot too, not just his politics, but I liked him personally. And we kind of had a, you know, we ran together and our daughters were about the same age. So we had sort of a social relationship before we had a professional one. And uh, so I crossed the bridge then and just never looked back. Yeah. Now, you know, you didn't work on Bush's 94 race. I didn't, which is a real kind of quirky thing because. I had done Richard's 90 race. I didn't work in the 90 reelect because if I had, I would have worked against Bush. Uh, but I was, I had a bunch of other commitments on the corporate side and I was kind of taking a step out of, out of campaign politics at the time, but it was just a, a little twist of fate. I am now probably the only person in America that worked both for Ann Richards and George Bush uh, since I didn't work in that race in 94. And I got to know him, you know, a couple of years later. What's fascinating to me, everybody always talks about the fact that you were a Democrat and you switched to Republican and worked for Bush. And how could that be? What, what really fascinates me is, is why did George W. Bush trust you? You know, that's an interesting thing. But uh, I mean, uh, several things. One is there was a guy named Bob Bullock, who was this towering, legendary figure in Texas, very much like LBJ. And he had been around Texas government forever, and he was the lieutenant governor when Bush was elected governor. And they hit it off. It was a very kind of mentor relationship that Bush had with him. And I had worked for Bullock. And Bullock just uh, got in Bush's ear and said, and Bush's media guy at the time had gotten into some legal troubles, and he had to hire a new person. And so Bullock got in his ear and in Carl Rove's ear and said, you should check out this guy, McKinnon. He's a really good guy and he's honest. And, you know, I think that uh, I think your your message of compassionate conservatism appeals to him because his politics weren't all that much different than Bullock. Bullock was a conservative Democrat and 
but an older, you know, from the old days. So they just kind of conspired uh, or Bullock did with Rove uh, to, to kind of orchestrate this deal. And uh, uh, I'll tell you a, a funny story about Bullock. Uh, I mean, he was he was a really he was like a really tough guy, carried guns that would fall out of his pocket at the Capitol. And he was a notorious drunk. And when this and he had had, I had worked against him uh, many years ago. Uh, working for a guy who ran for, uh, who was running against him for lieutenant governor, and then a, a seat became vacant in Waco. His name was Chet Edwards, and he ran for Congress. So Chet got out of the race against Bullock, but Bullock never forgot. He was like an elephant. And some years later, it was it was just ordained that I was going to go work for Bullock. So I went to pick up Bullock at the Capitol, and uh, we're going to go have lunch and sort of seal this deal. I'd never even met him before, and I. I I, I was in the car driving and he gets in the car and gets in and just crosses his arm, just gives me a really mean look. And I'm like, hello, Mr. Governor, how are you? Wouldn't shake my hand. Just, just gave me the evil eye, you know, and I kept driving and trying to start a conversation and he didn't respond at all. And it was just really weird. And then as we're driving along, he uncoiled like a snake right into my face he said, you remember all those lies you told about me, McKinnon? <laughs> I, I swerved off the road. I wet my pants. I figured he's going to put me, shoot me and put me in the trunk. And then he sweated me for another five minutes or so. I'm just kidding you. I just wanted to make sure you hadn't lost your stuff, man, because we're going to need some of that. Anyway, Bullock, Bullock was the guy that kind of aligned the forces. But to your point about like Graham and others, I remember, you know, the people who knew me, like Bagala, who was a former Democrat, he was like, listen, I know McKinnon and, you know, I don't agree with this decision, but I, you know, I believe he's making it for the right reasons and he believes in Bush and whatever. The people I had trouble with were people like Rick Perry. Rick Perry, uh, you know, was claiming that I was going to be a spy in the camp and I was, a, you know, never got, but the irony of that was that Perry only a couple years before that had been a Democrat as well. A Democrat like too, right. right. I mean, you couldn't have been around Texas very long and be in politics unless you had been a Democrat, you know, back in that day. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So that's well, always been. Yeah, and one thing that's always fascinated me about Bush, and I worked for Clinton in 92, and Bush reminded me a lot of Clinton how he adopted some of the Democratic proposals. So did yep. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton would yep. adopt what's popular, what people liked about Republicans. He'd make it his own and kind of lead with it and take that away. It seemed that George W. Bush had that same sort of philosophy. Would I be wrong with thinking that? No, no question at all. I mean, I mean, they, they had a number of things in common. One is, uh, as you said, they sort of understood the good ideas on the other side and co-opted them. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of compassionate conservatism was very much reaching out toward toward independents and Democrats, and a lot of those ideas appealed to to people across party lines. But also, they just were great retail politicians. The thing about Clinton, as you know uh, better than I do, is you know one on one, there's just nobody like that guy, and Bush was very much the same way. You could not like his politics, but it was really hard not to like him personally. And so Mm -hmm. in 1999, when we were running against Al Gore, you know, by conventional standards, Gore should have won that election. I mean, the economy was in pretty good shape, thanks to Clinton. On most issues, people thought Democrats did a better job, but we do focus groups. 
And, you know, the first 45 minutes are like, oh, I'm with Gore on Social Security. I'm with Gore on healthcare. I'm with Gore on climate change. I'm with Gore on this. At the end, we'd say, okay, so who do you want to have a beer with? Unanimous, George Bush. You know, so it was just a very, you know, affable, authentic, authentic, authentic side of Bush that appealed to a lot of folks. And, and I think, you know, given the current construct of the current president, it's, it's interesting to see that his, his legacy seems to have improved a bit. Quite a bit. In fact, over the last 24 hours, I think, with the, with the tweet, with the video, and then and then Right, Trump right. I mean, that was, I love that he did that because, you know, I get a lot of people saying, you know, why isn't Bush saying anything? And I think it was the right time and the right tone and the right message. And it just reminds me and all of those of us who really like Bush and, and a lot of people who don't like Bush, you know, coming to me and saying, man, I just, I didn't vote for the guy, but I really appreciate what he just did. And so... He may not go down as one of the great presidents, but I think he'll go down as one of the great ex-presidents. Well, I think the one thing that came that's always came across and it always befuddled Democrats was was just the fact that he, he did seem authentic and he did seem, you know, even mangling words and things like that. That actually helps you in politics. You know, I think that's well, I'll tell you a story about that. that you'll appreciate. Democrats don't understand. I'll tell you a story about that. that you'll appreciate as an ad guy. So you understand the power and importance of authenticity because in the modern era, people just don't believe what politicians say. They know that we have a first amendment and you can say whatever you want and, and lie with license. And uh, so it's incumbent on us as communicators to try and figure out a way to communicate on behalf of our candidates in a way that is believable. Right? So with Bush, for example, I almost never did a scripted ad because he didn't, first of all, he didn't do it well. He looked like he was reading an ad. Mm-hmm. And people would say that and said, ah, oh, you know, McKinnon or somebody wrote that for him. And it just, and they'd say, oh, bullshit. So in order to make it more believable, I would always just tease out something out of an interview or some spontaneous moment on the trail. And so it was him in his own words expressing himself however he did, which was not always perfect, but it was believable. And the best example of that was at the, 2000 convention, I had the responsibility for uh, producing the, the, the biofilm before his speech at the convention. Mm-hmm. So I went down to Crawford and shot a bunch of film with him at his ranch with he and Laura Bush. And there was a scene I shot where I was talking to them about when their daughters were born, their twin daughters. And W was talking about it. And he talked about, you know, uh, how he's in the, the delivery room and, and they sort of described what happened and he just completely mangled it. And it was very funny. He laughed and she laughed and we all laughed. And I was like, okay, let's do it again. And we did it like two or three more times till we got it just perfect. Then later when I went in to edit the film, we got to that part and I was like, okay, get that out, put in the good, put in the mistake. And they looked at me like I was, you know, crazy. And of course, the campaign and the president Carl Rover like McKinnon, are you out of your mind? You're we have complete control over this, and you want to intentionally put in a mistake. Why? And I said because it's authentic, it's believable, it's real, it's funny, it's human, it's vulnerable. And by the way, let's just lower the bar of expectations and acknowledge that our guy's not the best order in the race. And so we left it in, and it was a it was just a very human moment that really worked because that's who Bush was and is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think even people's 
the power that Trump has with people is that they think that he's authentic. They think that, well, he's not politically correct. He says these things, they're not right, but that actually kind of with some voters works. That's exactly right. And uh, here's a great example of that. Uh, so again, as a, as a professional who's been in the biz, you know how important a campaign announcement is. And for presidency, I mean, that's one of the three times that the debates, your announcement speeches at the convention are like the three times when you get almost unfiltered coverage. Uh, and, and, and it's a, you know, one of the real opportunities to move the dial and especially your announcement, because you pretty much get a free pass from the press. They let you kind of just say, okay, why are you running? And hopefully you've thought about that and have a narrative and a rationale and all that. Well, because of that, whenever I've done it, uh, you know, we put not just weeks, we put like months of work into that, you know, researching the message, crafting the speech, going back and forth with the candidate. I'm, I mean, Bush would really work hard on his speeches, contrary to the image of him, that somebody would just write it for him. He really worked on them. And we had like 25 versions of that announcement speech that went back and forth and then rehearsed it and then rehearsed it with teleprompters. So that you leave nothing to chance. So imagine our collective gasp when we saw Donald Trump come down the elevator at Trump Tower, go up and literally make up the speech on the spot. No notes, no teleprompter, just made it up. And it was, I mean, it was an alphabet soup, right? Of just kind of incoherent, disconnected thoughts, but that's exactly what his supporters wanted to see because they had reached a point in American politics where they didn't believe anything anybody said. They'd been lied to over and over again by these polished professional politicians. So it didn't even matter so much what Trump said as how he said it and the style and what he was, uh, what he symbolized by not having notes, by not having it prescripted, by not having teleprompters. People said, oh, that's authentic because it's right from the heart. And that's what appealed to a lot of Trump supporters and still does. Yeah, I think that in looking at presidential campaigns over the years, that having a sort of a pattern interruption with voters, the candidate that has that, whatever that is for that moment, is the most important thing. He was a pattern interrupter. John, I like Jimmy that Carter phrase, was a pattern. <laughs> Go right ahead. Jimmy Carter was a pattern interrupter. Bill yeah. Clinton at that time was a pattern interrupter. They were, they, they were the opposite of that person in office. And in yeah. some ways, and, and they have a new and they offer a new opportunity for folks. Barack Obama. Yeah. Barack Obama, absolutely, in visual and message and everything. In a strange way, you you know, I would always say a, a Joe Biden would not be a pattern interrupter because he is kind of vanilla. He's been around. He, there's nothing exciting about Joe Biden except for the fact that because of that, he is a pattern interrupter. He's interrupting the patterns right before him. He's interrupting the chaos. Right. 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 It's like, I think the one election cycle where someone like that, who is the ultimate insider, but is kind of calm and steady and also mingles words, but people think of him as an, not an out of reach person, like a John Kerry or something where, yeah, everybody yeah. seems to be working for it's, him or something. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, there's a lot of irony in, in it, but it it uh, and it's counter conventional wisdom because it's it's not 
often uh, that a, you know, con- I mean, in, the, in this modern era where a consummate insider who's been in the Senate forever, who's uh, 70, you know, late 70s, mm-hmm. would be your ideal candidate. Somebody who's been in office before, you know, given everything else we've seen in the last decade or so, you'd say, God, this guy doesn't stand a chance. And in fact, that's what a lot of people were saying about Biden at the beginning of that race. But the, the, the script has flipped uh, in such a significant way uh, that, I mean, it, first of all, you have Trump, who is like the ultimate pattern interrupter, who's the ultimate chaos candidate, who was, you know, one of the great change candidates of all time, Hall of Fame first ballot, right? But uh, the interesting thing about Trump is that generally, even somebody like that, once they get in office, they become they become the uh, uh, the status quo, right? And but not Trump. He has continued the chaos theory, and it's pretty rare that an incumbent president is running as this as the change candidate as the incumbent. Usually, they're the status quo candidate. Well, in this case, Biden, who's the challenger, is the status quo guy, right? And the incumbent is the change candidate. But because of what's happened in the last couple of months. That could very well be to Biden's benefit because we're at a time when people are scared of what's happening. What they don't want is chaos. They want reassurance. They want a guy that they're familiar with. They want you know somebody who they think has been there before, knows the levers of government. So all of this was very much unpredictable. But uh, but I think you know at least for the time being is uh, advantage Biden. I know that in in 04, watching your all's re-election campaign, you all went out of your way because the economy wasn't doing well, the war in Iraq was very controversial, but you went out of your way to make it a choice election between John Kerry and George W. Bush. And it was, which do you want those two guys being in the Oval Office? You didn't talk a lot about issues. It was a choice. You know, John Kerry was a flip-flopper. He was this, he was this. And he did a very good job. And, of course, John Kerry did a very good job boxing himself into all those things. Exactly. We were were masterful at making it a choice. We were blessed by our opposition in 2000 and 2004. But you're right. I mean, we we didn't have a choice. If it were simply a referendum on Bush, we would have lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, went went into that election with his approval under 50. uh, Iraq war, very unpopular. People disagreed with him on most policies. And the only way we could change that equation was to make it a referendum between Kerry and Bush. And there were just enough people who, uh, even if they didn't like Bush's policies, liked the fact that he believed in what he believed in. And it was pretty clear about that, as opposed to Kerry, who said, you know, he voted for it before he voted against it and, you know, served us up ammunition after ammunition to reflect uh, the fact that he was not a, you know, he, that he didn't have a clear vision about what he wanted to do. And I, you know, I, 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 I say, and, and people kind of laugh at me, but as kind of wacky as, as, uh, as Howard Dean was, I think he might actually beat us because even because the, on that axis of like, you know, he wasn't a flip flopper. And he had a sort of a clear vision, even though it was one that may have been out of the mainstream of most Americans. At least he sort of he was we couldn't have played that card against him like we did against Kerry. You know, we couldn't have said he was a flip flop or whatever. And and so 
I mean, it's to your pattern interruption thing. It's sort of like we pattern interrupt because we had Kerry and be able to play that against Bush to say, at least I know what I believe in. That's true. And you all played the flip-flop thing just brilliantly. And, but you're right about it. And I, you know, I was not a, a Howard Dean supporter. I think he was great as actually DNC chairperson. He was the best one we've had in my lifetime, but uh, I never really looked back and thought maybe he would have won that race, but he was authentic and he, right. he, that might've been the case. Yeah. Well, hard to say, but I, I think that uh, given the way it turned out that, that he might've had a better shot, but you know, we had, as you recall, uh, John Kerry running around and windsurfing and, uh, which gave us a lot of fodder for, for campaign ads. Their inability to respond. It, well, Democrats in general, you know, I, in my lifetime, just the inability to respond is, is an amazing, amazing thing. I, I'm too, I've got too much redneck in me to, <laughs> to be hit and yeah. not to hit you twice as hard back. I just don't yeah. understand. That yeah, the swift boat in August was really, oh that's where it all went south. Yeah, absolutely. And your time in Texas, I mean, you, you don't live there now, but you spent, good Lord, enough time there to know uh, the state. A lot of people are talking about Texas this year as being an actual swing state. What, what are your feelings about that? You know, I'm skeptical just because I've, I've heard it for a long time and I've watched the realignment happen over the years. And um, it, I mean, it's a very conservative place. Uh, I mean, you, I mean, it's it's a lot like Kentucky. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but people are talking about, well, is Mitch really in a race this time? Uh, I don't you know, I listen, here's my point about Texas. If. Uh, if Biden is winning Texas, that means it's a Monday. That means it's Reagan Mondale. That's like mm-hmm. a 47 state sweep. Mm-hmm. And, and, but my advice to Democrats would be don't sink a bunch of money there. I mean, cause if you, like if I said, if you're winning Texas, you're winning everywhere, you know, don't get distracted like Hillary did in, in 16 where she was spending all her time in Arizona when she should have been in, you right. know, Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. Right. So I just say ignore that. I, 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 I'd be surprised if it happens, but if it does, it's, it's, it's a landslide. I agree. I think it's kind of fool's gold and yeah. it's intriguing. It's great. Uh, it's kind of like Mitch McConnell's poll numbers. Every election cycle, he's below right. 50%. Yeah. We're going to beat him until we don't. Yeah, exactly don't. right. That's, and that's and then he pulls a double digit victory. But uh, I think maybe 10 years from now, maybe sooner Texas might be in play, but you know, I, I'm not a fan of the Electoral College. I think we should get the 270 before you look at anything else. Yeah, and I mean, the thing that, that the, the way people get distracted about Texas is, is they, they get uh, seduced by this notion of the, Democra- the demographic trends, which are increasingly heavily Hispanic. What they don't stop and think about is that a lot of Hispanics are pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, they just assume that they're all going to vote Democratic. Well, they don't, not in Texas. Right, they're ca- a lot of them are Catholic. Yeah, exactly right. They're Catholic, conservative. It doesn't mean they're that patriotic, they're patriotic. Yeah, absolutely. So, how do you the circus? When does it come back on? Uh, is is it a, a fall show? I mean, I've watched every year, but are you all filming things? Well, I guess you can't film things now. You film it in real time. We do. We we and I I I don't think we've done over sixty something episodes, and I don't think we've ever showed anything on a Sunday that wasn't shot that same week. 
Um, so we're on break right now, as we had initially planned. We only cut short our spring run by one week because of the virus. And our plan has been to come to come back for the convention. So we were going to come back in July for the Democratic convention. Now that's moved to August. So at least the current plan is to come back in August for the conventions and then go straight through to the election. Now, it's pretty clear, I think, that the conventions are going to be different. But whatever they are, we're going to try and cover it and then just go on through the election. I think a lot of people will be watching that show this fall. I think that I think the presidential election is going to be the best show that's ever people have witnessed. I think it's well, it's amazing. high drama, you know, and it wasn't sixteen, right. and that's that's why our our timing was so lucky. I pitched this show for ten years, and then they just decided right at the last second to do it that cycle, and so it all just came together. And 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 I, the level of interest in this one will be off the charts, and I think. You know, I think it'll be record turnout on both sides. So, you know, just uh, everybody's going to be dialed in and, uh, and it's going to be an historic election for sure. I want to ask you a question that you probably get asked a lot. And that is, especially from Democrats like myself, what was it like to work with Karl Rove? And how did you do that since you battle <laughs> each other so much in Texas? Well, you know, I always have, uh, uh, in most cases, a pretty healthy respect for people who kick the shit out of me. <laughs> And he did several times in Texas and he did it because he was smart. He was smart and strategic. And Karl Rove is also people just, you know, it's, it, this is the way politics is. You just get a cardboard one dimensional view of the opposition and usually make them as evil as possible. And, you know, responsible for all the evil things that happen in the world. Karl Rove is a very compassionate human being is one of my best friends. And, you know, I'd say to people, would they that how can you how can you even work with Karl Rove? Well, first of all, he's just really good at what he does. I learned a ton from him. He's got a mainframe computer for a brain. He's a huge history buff. Uh, you know, he's not just a hack. I mean, this guy really knows his stuff. And I tell people that for here's an example of you know why I like Karl Rove. You know, I love working with him, but. You know, there are, there are people in my life who I may be more politically aligned with. I don't always agree with Carl. But when my wife had cancer, he was the first one at her bedside in the hospital and sat with her, you know, through the night into the next day. So, you know, there's not a lot of people that, that you know, meet that kind of call in your life. And he did. And I'll never forget that. That's great. Yeah, I think that people are not cardboard cutouts, and I think that's very important. Well, know. maybe some of them are, you know, and some of them maybe earn that reputation. But I think, you know, uh, you know, for Steve Bannon, for example, he's a fascinating guy. He's one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done. He's, you know, people hate him because of his association with Trump, uh, but he's not an idiot. Uh, <laughs> he's a very interesting guy. So yeah, I mean, a Harvard MBA is usually don't go. Yeah, idiots. yeah, exactly. You know, exactly a, right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're done with your with your political consulting career. You're long past that. When you look at today's crop of folks that are doing things out there, doing ads, what who are some of the? It may be an unfair question because you you still talk with these people, but who do you think is really doing it right as far as communication, television ads, and things like that? Um. Well, um, you, you probably know who these guys are, but I because I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But do you know the guys who did the ads for like MJ Hager in Texas? No, no. 
Um, they're really good, and they they've done a lot of female candidates. They probably they're probably doing the the woman in Kentucky is running against Mitch is my guess. Mm-hmm. Do you know who's doing their ads by any chance? Uh, no, no, I think she just changed media consultants, I believe. But, uh, but yeah, it's the, the same type of, I think I saw the ad you're talking about. Um, it's the it same was called type the, of sort of cinematic. Door- it's a very cinematic. Yeah. Check out MJ Hager's ad. It's an ad called Doors. Okay. Um, and let me just see if I can figure out who did this real quick. Cause it's one of the best campaign ads I've ever seen. It's, it's MJ Hager and the ad is called Opening Doors. It's so well crafted, so well done. It's called the most viral political ad of 2018. Case McCabe, Putnam. Yes, yeah, Putnam. Oh, Putnam. Putnam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that is the the one that's working with Amy McGrath. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So those those guys are doing yeah. some really good work. Um, yeah. Uh, Bernie had some really good stuff going for him some of the you know the mm-hmm. like the the paul simon you know the callbacks the america and, ad that was great yeah the america ad um uh there's also there's so much like sort of um you know bernie did some of this and, and even oh geez there's sort of you know now that we have a sort of virtual ad making going on just stuff that comes out of nowhere uh, you know, not necessarily by the professional ad makers. It's some really good stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's, again, it's just trying to find something that's either really well crafted like these guys at Putnam do or something that's just really authentic. That, that you know, I, I like very, um, I, I lean toward uh, documentary style stuff that just mm-hmm. captures amazingly human moments. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the other thing that I say is that, even when I was ahead of the, I was the chief ad making guy for, for Bush in 2000, 2004, and then later for McCain, I was saying back in 2000 and 2004 that we were wasting 75% of our money on, on broadcast ads back then. And I think that's even more true today. So, mm-hmm. you know, trying to find stuff that, you know, I, you know, I think broadcast is largely a waste of money. Um, but, it's just, you know, with all the increasing platforms and tools that are used, it's just it's incredibly challenging to find something that can break through. But, you know, the, the really good campaigns do it. Obama had a lot of great stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Broadcast television, it's it's probably good for brand building if you had the resources. But nowadays to to get votes and. You know, it's 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 a very limited, especially since I think the middle voter there there aren't a lot of middle voters. Well, you know, I just saw an article on this. You know, not that I've been thinking about it, you know, for thirty or forty years, but you'd think I, you know, at least I'd think I usually think I know everything. But <laughs> in this discussion of broadcast, something I just read said that you know, even from this point on, you're really talking about a pool of maybe eight percent of voters who are persuadable. It's all base now. You know, it's a motivating the basis to get out. So the notion of sort of broadcast persuasion ads making a big difference in a presidential campaign is 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 kind of, you know, ancient thinking. When Rove talked about having a base election, was that for was that a real strategy or was that to try to divert Democrats? I always thought that maybe that was sort of a way to divert the press and divert Democrats from looking at really what that campaign was doing, which was a lot of field. 
which was a lot yeah. of voter contact, which was a lot yeah. of reaching out in many different ways. It was oh, sure. to me like a just a base election, but that was some that was the narrative he he told. Or was no, that, that true? Was a, or was it just space? No, you got it right. It was a typical rogue double reverse and you know, distracting mm-hmm. everybody. And no, if it was just a base election, we would have been creamed. Uh, there was a ton of outreach and a ton of voter contact done and with uh, you know, not the usual constituency. So that that was a real uh, you know, uh, misjudgment by <laughs> the macro media narrative for sure. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, and, and this will be the last question. What what prediction do you have for this for this year's election? You know, um, <laughs> the I mean, six months is a lifetime in politics, and it's literally six months to like yesterday. In the election, so it's a long way away. Yeah. But. Well, it's this one is going to be very tough for Trump to make it a choice. This is going to be a referendum on Trump and how he handles the virus. I, I think almost certainly. I mean, we got a lot of news today about the pandemic, which was not good. Uh, that even his own health officials now are saying that this thing, the curve, is not coming down. It's it, at best plateauing. And it's more likely that as, as you know, that in June, we're still going to be seeing 3,000 deaths per day. So on the health side, the picture is not very good. I think people just thought, oh, so the curve's going to go up, it's going to come down, it's going to be done. Well, it clearly is not going to be done. It's going to be around for a long, long time. So solving the health side of this uh, is going to be a major, major challenge. But more problematic, I think, for Trump is the economic side of this equation, which I just think is going to be much worse than they think. Uh, I think that the economic dislocation, I mean, just take Florida, for example. I mean, the, the economy there is, is you know, being impacted like everybody, like everywhere else is. But you may have read stories about how their unemployment kind of mechanics in that state were sort of intentionally designed to not be very good because they didn't want to have high unemployment numbers reported. And as a consequence, this number I know is not right, but let's say 10% of the people are supposed to be getting unemployment claims in Florida are getting them. So you start playing out those numbers and, you know, these checks are going to run out at some point. And it's not like a a flip, a a switch is going to flip and suddenly everybody's back to work. You know, that the notion of, you know, an employment situation is anywhere close to what we're used to, I think, is at minimum a year away, probably more like two years or maybe even more. When you look at, you know, stats like 40 to 50 percent of restaurants going out of business and even those that stay in business, they have a 25 percent cap on the number of people that can, can go there, that they're not going to be able to be profitable working under those circumstances. So I just think the cascading effect on the economy, you know, we could really be into sort of a Great Depression sort of era here for the next few years that's, that just is going to be very, very difficult. And, um, and as people begin to realize that, I, I just think it's, well, I mean, again, just reading some stuff today, Trump's support among seniors in the last month has dropped 20 points. So he's got a competing uh, option, which is, you know, do I go to sort of 
you know, preserve lives or preserve the economy. And increasingly, he's going down the preserve the economy route. And, and, and as I just said, we're seeing more bad numbers about how this is going to impact the health of Americans, particularly seniors. So it's hard to see how it's going to reverse those numbers among seniors. And if that's a 20-point drop among seniors, you know, bye-bye, Felicia. That's, that's good night. Mm -hmm. So if I had to say right now, you know, I just almost every factor is running against Trump. Uh, and, it, and there's not a lot of prospect for it to get a lot better before November. You know, on the other hand, he pulled, you know, an incredible rabbit out of the hat last time. And, you know, he may come concoct some, you know, compelling conspiracy about how this was all China's fault. And uh, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden have been in the pocket of China. It was really their fault that Hunter Biden is actually the first person to uh, get the, the flu and brought it over from China. That's that's what's going to be the end game for Trump, I think. Right. And if all elections where the incumbent needs to make it not a referendum, but a choice, you've got a president that cannot mentally, with his ego, make it anything but a referendum. He wants it right. to be a referendum. It has to be about him. Yeah, exactly And right. that's really going to play against him big time. And it, it feels like 1980 to me. Now, I was only like nine, but uh, it feels like a night, the 1980 election where it's just a tipping point where people are just going to have decided against the incumbent and they're not going to hear much else after that. That is the way funny. that incumbent handled the situation. Yeah. And uh, that just feels like it. Well, also one thing, the scarf and, and the <laughs> scarf and, and the, uh, the cowboy. I'm from Kentucky. Not too many people wear cowboy hats here in Kentucky, but some people do. But where I'm from, there's not that combination is not a a regular combination. Can you explain? I see you on TV all the time, and I really have always wanted to ask you: When did you start wearing the scarf? Yeah. Well, two things. One is uh, the hat. It may be an affect, but it's it's not a recent affect. I've worn a hat. There's not a picture of me growing up. I don't have a hat on. And my dad had this hat that I'm wearing right now. It's called a Stetson Open Road style, and he had one when I was a kid. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. It was in his closet of all the cool dad things. And I couldn't wait till I was old enough to get my very own open road Stetson. So uh, that's where the Stetson comes from. And it's this particular style is kind of a gentleman's hat. This is the, it's also yeah. called the presidential hat. This is what LBJ wore, Truman wore, a couple of other presidents, Eisenhower. You can wear it with like. jeans and a suit. You right. You can wear this as exactly right. And um, the scarf just came from, uh, I just, I hate ties. And uh, I, I just I've been on a crusade against ties all my life. But I but if you're not going to wear a tie, there are formal situations where you need to dress it up a little bit. So the scarf yes. is my nod to a tie. <laughs> to gotcha. just make it a little more formal. <laughs> well, it's cool because it's original and you don't see folks on. Well, the other thing is, that you know, about 20 or 30 years ago, when I started going to meetings. I said, the goal should be not to look like everybody else in this room. Be the other guy. I think it's true. I think that's right. true. I think that works for you. Mark, thank you very much for being here. I've enjoyed it, right? Thank you a bunch. I'm glad you're doing this. It's a thank fun you. deal. Thank Kick you. it hard I'll and carry watch. on regardless. Absolutely. Can't wait to watch the circus also. Thank you, man. Talk to you later. Bye. See ya. Want to learn more campaign secrets? Want to learn how to start raising money for your campaign? Even during these uncertain and unpredictable times, you want to know how to craft a winning campaign message? Then you need my free ebook, 
Campaign Fundraising Secrets. Head on over to CampaignFundraisingSecrets.com now. Put in your name and email and you can download a copy of this easy to read and implement guide. While you're there, sign up for your free seven-day campaign secrets challenge. It'll walk you through how to campaign in the middle of this crisis, creating your fundraising system, crafting a great campaign message, and much, much more. I hope you learned a lot today, and I'll see you next time on the Campaign Secrets Podcast. Take care.